0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is producer, film composer, and keyboardist, C.J. Vanston. First of all, songwriters are finally going to get that raise that we talked about a while back. Well, the Copyright Royalty Board had ruled that a rate increase should start in 2018 and would continue until 2022. That sounds all well and good, but Spotify, Amazon, and Google all appealed it. So in fact, that raise didn't happen and songwriters weren't paid the increase. Take notice, Apple was not involved in this. Well, CRB has now come back and said, you have to pay what we originally agreed on. So they overruled Spotify, Amazon, and Google. It's not a total victory though because the latest definition of streaming bundles that are covering family plans and bundles with telephone companies and other discounts that actually reverted back to a deal that is more financially advantageous to the streaming services. That being said, songwriters can expect a big chunk of money coming their way because now all those back royalties have to be paid. This isn't the end of it though because the next negotiation for a raise is coming up, and this is going to be for the period of 2023 to 2027. So there will probably be another huge discussion that happens, another huge negotiation, but if all goes well, it'll end up on the right side for the songwriter. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted rate at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Now, if you listen to this podcast at all, you know that I've talked about this over and over, that there hasn't been a new technology in microphones and capturing audio or reproducing audio, as in loudspeakers, in well over 100 years. Yes, there's been evolutions, and things have certainly gotten a lot better and more sophisticated, but we're waiting for a new revolution in how audio is captured and reproduced. Guess what? That might have happened, at least on the capture side. One of the big problems with microphones is they pick up everything that they hear. But this new technology might actually solve that. This comes from the Carnegie Mellon School of Computer Science Robotics, and it's using a camera instead of a moving coil or an electrically charged capsule. What will happen is musical vibrations are visualized and analyzed, capture the sound. Now optical mics have actually been around for a while but they've always used a really high-speed camera in order to do the job. Well this new technology will use not one but two cameras and what that allows to happen is these can be fairly inexpensive cameras. This is called dual shutter optical vibration sensing. It basically shines a laser at the vibrating surface. One camera captures that and another one sort of acts as a control. And between the two of them, you're able to get the frequency response that really couldn't be captured before, and separation between the different instruments as well. The previous optical mics were kind of limited to a high end of 20K, and they used really high-speed cameras, something like 60,000 frames a second. But now, this new technology will allow 63 frames per second, which is certainly doable, and the frequency range goes from 20 on the low end all the way up to 63K. Even better, it will eliminate all the room reflections if that's what you want. It has a lot of industrial uses as well, looking for mechanical wear, because the sound of an engine, the sound of a mechanical device will change over time as the components begin to wear. And this optical camera can actually sense that and alert the operator that there's an upcoming problem about to happen. So this is really exciting. This may be the revolution in capturing audio that we've hoped for. And not only will it capture audio, but it may give us some additional benefits that we've also hoped for. So fingers crossed, that this will be something that we'll be able to actually use in a very short period of time. My guest this week is producer, songwriter, and keyboardist C.J. Vanston. C.J. started doing jingles in Chicago, where he soon became a first-call player, doing as many as six sessions a day. After moving to Los Angeles, he worked with a wide variety of artists like Toto, Def Leppard, Prince, Joe Cocker, Tears for Fears, Spinal Tap, Ringo Starr, Bob Seger, B.B. King, Celine Dion, Dolly Parton, and many others. He's also worked on films like Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, Sweet Home Alabama, A Mighty Wind, Mascots, and much more. CJ has also written and performed pieces for the Dalai Lama and Muhammad Ali, and most recently co-wrote, co-produced, and performed on Jeff Skunk Baxter's 2022 solo release called speed of heat. During the interview, we talked about how CJ got his nickname, getting started in the studio scene, learning to engineer and mix, working with some of music's greatest artists, and much more. I spoke with CJ via Zoom from his home in the Hollywood Hills. I want to start the beginning with you because you have such an interesting history but let's go back to you know when you started in the music business did you start in chicago
1: no michigan i uh, grew up in lansing michigan my father was a jazz piano player a great jazz piano player and uh, my parents split up when i was really young so i spent half of my time at my dad's dad's apartment which was above a stage in a jazz club. So I was kind of raised by Wolf, you know, the jazz guys. I, you know, watched him a lot, snuck into the club a lot and watched my dad and kind of came up through the scene there. You know, I uh, ended up playing in high school and competing classically when I was about 13 or 14, started playing some classical competitions and didn't like it, but, uh, I saw an all, all black, uh, horn band when I was 17. And I just said, this is what I want to, do. I want to play in a band. So, uh, I blew off college and joined that band. And uh, there were two other Jeffs in the band. My name is actually Jeffrey and uh, AJ, BJ, CJ. <laughs> AJ was the worst driver on the planet. And back then there was a race driver named AJ Foyt. And then BJ was Black Jeff, Caucasian Jeff. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <That's it. laughs> I got it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, just, it went through all sorts of different cover bands, playing every kind of style of music from funk to jazz to rock to prog and then ended up moving to chicago oh about five years later become a studio musician and i spent almost 10 years there doing thousands of jingles how did you break into the scene there i joined a band that we were recording in a studio that was a top jingle studio and the guy that owned it, his name was dick marks who was richard's father and uh I was really interested in the studio scene. First time I set foot in the studio, I just said, man, this is what I want to spend my life. And so he let me sit in and watch a couple of sessions. And I said, look, I, this is what I want to do. I want to be a session keyboard player. And somebody said, you know, there's like 35 other keyboard players. I don't care. Within a year, I was the number one guy there. And uh, just went on for nine more years of thousands of sessions. Just crazy. Every kind of style of music. Sight reading, play with orchestras, playing country, doing sound effects not Great training. But at a certain point, I thought, you know, I didn't do all this just to make the sound of shrimp flying on the Red Lobster. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I gotta, yeah, I gotta get out to LA and make some records. And uh, Dick's son was making a record, Richard, and I came out and did one song for him, and that ended up being right here, waiting, which was a huge, giant hit. That's my demo, actually. That that track and uh, ended up arranging his whole record
0: and phone started ringing. I understand Dick Marks was tough to work with. If you sucked, he was,
1: <laughs> you know, the people that say, Oh yeah, he's, he's a pain in the ass. Well, I guess he didn't dig what you were doing. Cause he was always, always cool with me. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a couple times where he busted, busted my ass. You did not be late. You were never late to a Dick Marks session. I mean, the second hand hit one, Yeah. Well, I mean, the training ground was awesome. So, yeah, he cracked the whip and he didn't take any shit, you know. Um, But he was a huge mentor for me, like a second dad almost.
0: That's really great to have somebody like that early in your career.
1: Sure. Big time that believed in me. And my first session with him, uh, I thought I killed it. And uh, he came and put his arm around me and said, kid, you really suck today. But you're going to be great and I'm going to stick with you.
0: How long did it take you from that point till you were working regularly with him?
1: After my first session, that was it. Oh, really? Yeah, that was it.
0: Well, What is it that you had to change then? If he said that you sucked in the first session and then you're okay after that, then what? what... Shit, shit. He was just giving me shit. I was great. I knocked it out of the park. <laughs> okay. He didn't
1: want me to get cocky, that's all.
0: Yeah. Well, that'll do it, definitely. Okay, so when you get to L.A., then, you're starting to do all these sessions. You're starting to meet all these people that are giants in the business. How long did it take you to break into that then?
1: Well, like I said, the first song I did when I got here was Right Here Waiting. And that was a huge hit. That album was a big hit. And the phone just started ringing. It's like, hi, this is Phil Ramone. Hi, this is Desmond Child. Hi, this is, you know, the phone just started ringing. And uh, the more it rang, the, the more I worked with people. And I got a pretty good repeat callback thing with all my clients, people seemed to enjoy working with me and I was pretty much on fire, you know, and kind of hit the ground running. So success breeds success.
0: Yeah, yeah. All
1: word of mouth. I had no manager, no agent.
0: What were they hiring you for? I'm just curious, was it acoustic piano stuff or was it electronic keyboard stuff?
1: Well, the thing I really excelled in was programming, synth program. But unlike some guys that did that, I could play You know, I could read fly shit on piano. I could, uh, I'm a pretty good blues piano player, blues organ, you know, jazz, Rhodes, Wurlitzer, all the mechanical stuff, I had that down too. So it was kind of a, they could call me in to cover everything,
0: you know? Yeah, yeah.
1: But I was really good at coaxing sounds out of synthesizers. Making them sound emotional and not kind of plastic. And I always had a touch for that, so.
0: I saw on your Facebook page, you're surrounded by a bunch of really cool vintage keyboards. Yeah, yeah. How often do you use those today?
1: Not a lot. I have to be honest. I really don't use them a lot. I mean, this record I just did with Skunk Baxter, we pulled out a few of them. We pulled out the Jupiter 8, the Oberheim 4 voice, and uh, that stuff. But man, the plugins are just so good. They're so good, and they're so quick, and they're recallable. It just goes with my pace of working better. And lugging something in and out, but then you go fire one of them up, and you just go well Nothing, nothing sounds like this, you know.
0: Yeah, but again, you don't have oscillators drifting and stuff like that, so that's yeah. the good part.
1: Yeah, and if I want to go back and get the patch again, it's a, you know, it's just right there. I'm a I'm a Logic guy, so everything gets stored in there, and all the all the plugins and sense and Logic are just ridiculously great.
0: Although you still do have somewhat of a problem with uh, recall. If you don't print your virtual instrument, sometimes when you do an update and you come back, it's not the same.
1: That's exactly right. That's why I got to make stems at the end of every record, you know, dump everything down. Yeah. And I've forgotten to do that times and gotten bit. Yeah. Exactly that. So that's one reason I do like using Logic is everything is so native. So pretty much Logic's stock synthesizers and uh, Omnisphere and a few other things, Arturia's stuff has stood up. The test of time. So
0: yeah, yeah. You were doing session work, but you were also going out on the road during this period.
1: Yeah, I didn't want to, you know, but I got a call. Well, it's interesting. The first first call I got to go on the road was uh, I did a showcase at the Roxy, and the sound guy came up and he goes, "Who are you? My God, your sounds are amazing. My boss would love you." And I said, "Well, who's your boss?" He said, "Don Henley." Oh, and Don had just come out with that end of the Innocence record, and I thought, boy that'd be nice to work with Don Haley. He says, well, he's doing a tour. You ought to audition for it. So I did. And I don't know, there was 30 guys, 40 guys. I don't know how many guys audition. I, I got called back three or four times and it kept getting whittled down to a smaller number. And it finally came down to, uh, I think three of us and I got the call for the gig and they said, uh, you know, you've got the gig with Don, but, uh, he wants you to shave his your beard. And I said, I'm sorry. He's like, what? And they said, yeah, he wants you to shave your beard. And I said, well, yeah, if I wanna shave it, I'll wake up some morning and shave it. But you know, if I don't want to, I'm not gonna, I'm certainly not gonna shave my beard because somebody asked me to. And they said, well, you know, this is a prerequisite for the gig. And I said, I'm not shaving my beard for anybody, sorry. And I was sure I was gonna get the gig and I didn't. I didn't get the gig. So I was brokenhearted that I didn't get it. But Katie Segal, married with children, great singer, was at a party a couple of weeks later. And said to Don, uh, hey, I need a keyboard player for when I'm doing a, uh, some live dates. I need like, a musical director keyboard player. He goes, I know a great guy, but he's got an ugly beard. <laughs> and so that was me. And what I'm getting to is uh, the drummer in that band was Russ Conkle. Mm. Russ, Russ Conkle walked up. I'm like, what? You're the dr- Yep. So I played him the demos. And he goes, what am I listening to? I said, well, these are the demos. He said, yeah, but who did this? I said, I did. He goes, "Who's playing bass? That's me on synth. Who's pro? I programmed all that. Who did the charts? News? Okay, I got two people I'm going to introduce you to. One was Greg Ladani, legendary engineer and producer, became probably my best friend in the world. And the other was Christopher Guest. And so uh, I got a one nighter with Spinal Tap with Russ Kunkel at the NAM show '91. I saw that. You were there for that.
0: I was there for that.
1: Wow. Yeah. Dweezil Zappa played there. Yeah, it was a great gig. Yeah, yeah, it was. Luke sat in. Yeah, 91. Jeez.
0: What I remember was they kept on calling uh Luke Lucifer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Steve Lucifer.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was great. Steve
1: Lucifer guitar. And but they just wanted to do a one-nighter. But then I kind of filled up so much sound and they started saying, hey, maybe we should do some other gigs and started doing some more gigs. Hey, maybe we should do a record. So we did a record break, like the wind, all different all different producers on that. And hey, maybe we should go on the road. So we did a tour. All right, I'll go on the road with Spinal Tap, and that was of course a gas. And a couple of years later, I uh, I met Joe Cocker and started arranging his records with Chris Lord Alge. And um, Joe talked me into going on the road with him. And I I was very hesitant to, because I was doing so well in the studio. I said, screw it, I'm going to do it. And we did, you know, I think we did 14 months on and off the first tour, almost 40 countries, you know. And I got a taste of that. So then I got back in the studio. I've toured with a few other people, Tears for Fears, Tina Turner, and then another tour with Joe, and another tour with Spinal Tap. But that's about it. Now I just finished a little mini tour with Skunk Baxter. It does feel good to get get out there again.
0: Yeah, 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 right.
1: Uh, you know, the 2 hours a day is what it's for and the other 22 is you know, can be a bit of a challenge. So
0: when you were working with Spinal Type, did you do the movie music as well?
1: No, that was uh it would have been 84 and I moved to uh my first gig was that was 91.
0: Ah, got it. Okay. Yeah. So
1: the movie had been done and dusted, but it was still a dream gig, you know. I've always had a, a foot in comedy. And, uh, of course, then I ended up scoring all Chris's movies. Yeah, right. And doing Harry's records, and uh, it just became a family, you know?
0: Yeah, that's right. I, I You did Chris's movies as well, so, yeah. And they're all great. I have to say, all of them are dynamite. Yeah. I bet it was great to be part of that, and certainly in retrospect, I'm sure.
1: Well, and part of it is, uh, you know, most of those movies, I had the music pretty much done before we started filming. And so Chris always gets me a director's chair right next to him. I sit. I just sat on the set for all those movies. You know, I wasn't required to, and I wasn't even paid to, but I, where else are you going to go? Sit and watch Eugene and Catherine riff off each other.
0: You know? No kidding. Jeez. Well,
1: nine, nine projects worth of that. And it's like a family, you know, with dear Fred Willard when he was around and, uh, you know, the whole cast were just very, very close.
0: Sure. Sure.
1: Including the crew, you know, we had, a lot of the same crew followed us around, and uh, the grips and everybody. So it's really a quality organization. So,
0: When you're a family like that, and you're with people that really work well together, yeah, everybody wants to stay together. Yep, sure. I read somewhere that you did something with the Dalai Lama.
1: Yeah, interesting. I, uh, I got called from a friend of mine, Michael Fitzpatrick, to uh, work for Muhammad Ali. Uh, I became co-musical director with him at the Muhammad Ali Awards every year. And so I would travel to Louisville, and God, we did this eight years in a row, I think. Didn't do it last year because of COVID. But uh, one of the Dalai Lama's assistants was there and said, Hey, I think my boss might like your playing. So Michael and I got to play for the Dalai Lama. Wow. And uh, yeah, that was a real thrill.
0: Yeah, no kidding. real thrill, yeah. Was Muhammad alive when you were working?
1: He you? was, it, until the last three years. But he was in, you know, various stages of uh, declining health. But I did get to meet him and talk with him at the beginning. And he knew who I was. Uh,
0: I grew up in a little town in Pennsylvania called Minersville, 5,500 people. That in itself doesn't mean anything except that 10 minutes down the road was Deer Lake, Pennsylvania, where Muhammad would train.
1: Oh, right, right.
0: And we always wondered why he picked this little hick town, you know to train because there was really nothing there, but he became quite the sensation. Whenever he was there, he was very low key and and as low key a way as Muhammad Ali could be. But you know he'd be out running along the side of the road with his entourage, and there'd be famous people that suddenly would show up in this again little Hick town. Uh, Elvis showed up, and of course then you you know you hear about it. I don't think anything has as big as ever happened before or since in that area.
1: Oh, well, what's bigger than Muhammad Ali anyway? Yeah. <laughs> you know, amazing.
0: Yeah, definitely. You just finished the record with Skunk. So it's your record, you and him then?
1: Yes, it's got his name on it, but it's, it's our record. I mean, he'll tell you the same thing. It's, uh, we started doing tracks years ago and just got a couple done and didn't do anything for a year. And then, did something one of these days, worked on this weekend, and then finally a couple years back, we said, you know, we, we should get serious about this and finish this record. And we did. And we had written a tune with Michael McDonald. We did one with uh Clint Black, one with Johnny Lang. And but the rest of the record is pretty much uh Jeff and I and uh you know, a couple different drummers. Toss panels,
0: so Terry, yeah. Are you playing keyboard bass on it? Mm-hmm.
1: About half the record's me playing bass. One of my favorite things to do is play keyboard, so I love it. I'm just curious, did you ever do that live? Uh, keyboard bass live? Yeah. No, not really. Not really. They'd always have a bass player. And no, I can't th- think of any time I ever did that live. Yeah, I did it on a few tunes with different tours, you know, when you wanted this, a big synth bass and never went out with, without a, a bass player.
0: Do you feel that you're mostly like a, a film composer now or a session player? or How would you classify yourself?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I'm i as much of that as an as an engineer, mixer, composer, string arranger, horn arranger, session keyboardist, live keyboardist. I'm, I like it all. And there's not really one that really kind of pins me down. I will say that most of the stuff I play, people always say that has a cinematic sound. I always get a wide sound cinematic. So uh, even the stuff on Jeff's record kind of comes off some filmish, you know.
0: Okay, well, that begs the question then, did you have any formal training in orchestration?
1: No. No, none. I just taught myself. I just went and got books and studied and happened to grow up in the greatest possible era of music. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah, right. The
1: music in the 70s was just, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Music. And, and that, in addition to uh, the stuff that my dad and my mom played around the house, you know, all the... Uh, uh, Bill Evans stuff with Klaus Olderman, all those beautiful arrangements. and Just, I had really good ears. I mean, I was listening to a Blood, Sweat & Tears record the other day. and I remember there's a note that used to drive me nuts that David Clayton Thomas hit. It was sharp. And I, I know where it is. and I must have been eight years old or ten years old. And that came up. And man, it's just barely out yeah. of tune. Yeah, yeah. But it drove me nuts when I was eight, you know. So it's like the same ears. So I listened a lot and I heard a lot. I absorbed a lot. That's all I did was listen to music, listen, 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 transcribe, went to the library, transcribed Charlie Parker records, taught myself how to, I mean, I, I did play classical piano, so that helped with the reading part. So, but there's, you know, it's weird when you learn classical piano. No theory. I didn't even know what chords I'm playing. And I'm playing Chopin and Beethoven and Mozart. It's like, how can you be that advanced technically and still don't, don't know what a C major seven is, you know? Very odd concept. So that's when I said, I got to learn, I got to learn how this structure goes. And I got hooked.
0: I'm just thinking about this. You're right. That's the way that works. It blows your mind. Actually, when you think about it, it's like, there's no theory behind this. It's just kind of like rote.
1: Yes. Well, go to an orchestra and say, Hey, we're going to take this up a step and they're (laughs) going to just scare you. There's no way. There's no (laughs) way they can do it.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. I forget who was telling me musical director for Stevie Wonder when he's doing orchestras. And he was saying it was crazy with Stevie because Stevie would decide to okay we need an extra chorus here we, okay the outro is going to go extra long and him trying to communicate that with the orchestra and how difficult it was because they you know they weren't used to that stuff at all but I guess he trained him by the end
1: yeah well it's not really that hard to learn I think it just takes a uh, a desire you know to go I've got to know how to do this I mean that's what I would do and that's what I did you know I had to know. It's a different genre, that's for sure.
0: So you're a great player, obviously, and, and you, early on you had the touch, you had the magic, and great ears, which is a prerequisite for engineering and production and everything. But I'm curious, so eventually you get into engineering, and how did that happen?
1: Well, it's real simple. Uh, we finished a take, and the guys would sit around, excuse me, you know, tell a couple of jokes or whatever. I'd beeline it to the control room. And I'd stand behind the engineer and I'd just watch and watch and watch and watch. And I worked with the greatest engineers in history. Here's Phil Ramon, Humberto Gatica, uh, Greg Lidani, Bruce Swedeen, Ed Cherney, Chris lord
0: Yeah,
1: On and on and on. These are the guys I learned from. So uh, it was Steve Lukather, though, that got me into mixing. We were working on one of the solo records that I co-produced. And he played me something that one of his guys had mixed. And he goes, what do you think? I said, I think it sounds like dog shit. It sounds awful. What happened to our record, Steve? And he goes, well, he's trying a bunch of stuff. He's trying, you know, he's trying this and that. And I, you know, I think it's cool. I said, let's put the original demo back on that we did. We wrote the song and demoed it in three hours. And I hit play and it just about jumped out of the speakers. Mm. He goes, you're mixing the record. I go, I'm not a mixer. And he goes, oh yeah, you are. You just don't know you are. You've never given yourself the credit for being a mixer. And so I mixed the whole record. And that's when I started mixing the Spinal Tap stuff, pretty much mixing everything I do now. So right. it, it, The thing is, you spend all this time making this record, sitting in production. Another reason I love working in Logic and uh, not working on a console, everything's in the box because I can, let, let's let do a guitar over it. I'm in this song. Boom. There it is. Next song. Boom. There it is. Boom. There it is. So anyway, I've always got my automation on. I've got a Mackie controller with movable faders, and it's always on it. So I'm always riding shit, you know, mm. all the time. So after you've worked on a song over months, it's sounding pretty close. And so the old thing was, okay, now let's, let's make separate tracks and send it out to someone else. Oh, we're almost there. Let's just put the, you know, the finishing touches on it. And it was Steve that got me doing that.
0: Do you have uh, some favorite plugins that you use almost all the time?
1: There's one I'll tell you about. It's by a company called TuneTrack and it's called <laughs> Easy Mix. And it sounds so cheap and it's so damn cool. What it is, it's a multi-effects plugin. It's got a multi-band compressor. It's got a flanger, chorus, delay, all sorts of reverbs, pretty much everything you could think of in a box, but there's only two knobs. So what they do is you buy these producer packs. Al Schmidt made a pack. So... I've got a huge collection of these producer packs. So you type in acoustic guitar and here's 75 patches for acoustic guitar. So while the track's playing, I just scroll down and go through patches to find something that where it jumps out of the speaker the way I want it. And then I can tweak from there. Now to create any single one of these patches would be five or 10 minutes to sit and mess around and go, Oh, I don't like that. But to be able to punch through and it sounds like cheating. It sounds like a, a cop out and it's not at all. It's a, it's a really cool way to find new sounds. So I love easy mix. As far as I mean, the universal stuff's great, but the built-in logic stuff. Yeah. <laughs> don't yeah. know what to say. And the compressor in logic, the, the the reverbs, the delays, everything.
0: The AI driven plugins, new intelligent plugins, I kind of feel the same way as you. Anything that makes it easier and faster. It's not cheating. It's just and let's get on with doing music and less. Plus, it's tennis. something.
1: There's a randomness to it. There's it's something. It's like when you hire a player to come. In. You're going to get something that you didn't predict. Yeah. It's unpredictable, and that's what's cool about it. So the same with a plugin like this. You're getting a sound that you wouldn't necessarily have dialed up if you were chaining together six plugins to create a sound. It's like whoa, what's that? Oh man, that's cool. That's so what I did with uh, especially Steve Lupiter when he was doing his records. I finally talked him into doing some virtual amp stuff. And I go, just noodle around, and I'm going to start going through presets. And he go, whoa, whoa, go back. What was that? What was that? Hmm. And he, oh, give me that. Put me, a, Give me a part with that. You know, So there's a lot to be said for that randomization. Uh, did you start with Logic? No, I started with Studio Vision was the original. That was great program.
0: Wow, that's that that's fun. a long time ago.
1: Yeah. That was bought by, by, I believe, Gibson, and they just ruined it. They didn't, just didn't even work on it. So I think I switched over to DP for a while, Digital Performer, because that, was, it was eMagic back then. It was uh, Notator. That's what Logic was back then. And it was so confusing, but everyone kept saying, you got to check out Logic. But then once I got into Logic, it's ridiculous. The fact that it's made by Apple, and I'm on an Apple computer – and that means every time I update my OS, I know it's going to work in it. Whereas my Pro Tools friends are all like, "Oh no, I can't update <laughs> my my OS for you know six months." Yeah. Well, that's an engineer's tool to me. Pro Tools is a great tool for engineers, but I, I
0: don't think it is. I've always felt that Logic was a fantastic program for creation, for music creation. Just makes it really easy. I can never get my arms around it for mixing.
1: Well, that's an old. That's an old. People used to always say that, you know, you don't mix in Logic. Do you? And it's like, I know it's ridiculously great to mix. And it's just kind of what you learned on, you know, it, it looks unfamiliar. It's, it's great to mix on. The vocal comping, the uh, swipe comping and Logic is mind blowing. It's just mind blowing the way it works. Mm. So I much prefer it over comping. And, I mean, I can run, I can get a work around Pro Tools,
0: but. I was an early digital performer guy as well. On uh, Digital Performer Version 1, wow! it was clunky. The MIDI was great, MIDI was fantastic, but the audio was eh, so-so. So I switched into Window Version 1, which was fantastic, except for the fact that everything I was getting in was Pro Tools, and after a while you go, oh, I just don't have the time to swap everything again, and it's like, okay, I, I give in, so you know, Pro Tools ever since.
1: Yeah, I fell into that same thing when people uh, were were sending me Pro Tools sessions. I'd finally just say, you know, send me stems starting from Bar One, uh, just audio stems, and I'll deal with it from there. But then I really don't do sessions that I didn't originate hardly anymore. You know, it doesn't happen that way. And look, there's Studio One. That's the Personas program. That's great. program called BitWigs. Awesome. Uh, Ableton Live is great. There's all sorts of great ways to make music. I mean... I would have killed for any of these when I was 15 years old. Yeah, you know? no kidding.
0: What monitors are you using, CJ?
1: Well, that's interesting. I've got a bunch of set of monitors, sets of monitors that I really like. Uh my big monitors at I've got a studio here in the house, but down I can see it from here, about 3 miles out, uh, I've got a, my big studio. I've got a, uh, these PSI's, companies called PSI, and they're just phenomenal sounding monitors. They there's a monitor called Lipinski's and they master with these. They're like 60 yeah. grand or something like that. I know them, yeah. I heard, yeah, I heard those at the show at AES. Like, okay, this, is, this reminds me of how, why I got into the music because it sounded like this. And these PSIs reminded me of that. They're just like, they're not even military grade, they're NASA grade monitors. And I've got their big, big subwoofer and two uh, eight inch near fields. But that being said, uh JBLs make some great stuff. I've got their seven series.
0: Mm, good.
1: Love those. I uh, love uh, uh, the, the 308s, those are great. And I also have a pair of focals that are phenomenal sound. So I kind of bounce around between those three PSIs and JBLs and focals. Somebody asked me, you know, I was just gonna add, I think it was yeah, uh, you know, the guys at PSI said, Well, what do you think of our monitors? I said, I never think about your monitors. I don't want to think about your monitors, I want to work. You know, so I'll never have to worry about whether it's going to translate or not. And I've got a really, really good control. It. That's, that's the most important thing that I see lacking. I go out and guys are working in some converted bedroom or garage and, you know, it's all drywall with a couple pieces of foam here and there. And it, that's what doesn't translate is the room.
0: So. Yeah. Who built it?
1: You know, I don't know. I took it over in this industrial park. I got to find out the guy's name. And, and if I said it, you would know who it was, but Vincent von Hoff became one of my dearest friends. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: He was just amazing. And he, he gave it the, the seal of approval. <laughs> he came over, we would knock on the door. Vinston! It's Vincent von Hoff at the door. What a legend. As a matter of fact, I called him because Ed Cherny came over to my studio and I had turned, I had my console facing the, the way it's supposed to face. But then my keyboard rig was on the side of the mobile. I spent 90% of my time at the keyboards where the sound's not reflecting the right way. And Ed's like, man, you got to turn your studio this way. And just get rid of this console. You hardly ever use it. And I said, I don't know, man. The vibe is so great in here. People love my studio. I was, I didn't want to touch anything. So I called Vincent to come over. And Vincent, I'm worried about changing the vibe here if I get rid of this console. And he puts his finger on my chest and he goes, the vibe is right here. You are all that matters in this room. With the advice, right there.
0: Yeah. Do you have any plans of getting into Atmos? Uh, that's funny. I'm I'm
1: doing a project now. Uh, I don't think I can talk about, it, but it is. Uh, I'm going to be mixing my first mix in Atmos. Yes, I'm very interested in it. On headphones? Could be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a new product. I can't talk about. Yeah. But, um, yeah.
0: Everybody seems to start that way, and until they kind of get the feel for it and feel they can invest in, you know, monitors, so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not even the, in, it's the, not the money. It's just the, the installation of like yeah. having my studio down for three weeks. So.
0: I hear you. Okay. Last question, CJ. What is the best piece of advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way?
1: Well, it's what I didn't learn. And, um, I didn't know how good I was what I did. And I don't mean that to be cocky or anything like that. I'm from the Midwest. Well, you're just supposed to be happy with what you got. And so I gave away a lot of money and a lot of points by just being glad to be in the room and not going, hey, you know, I just wrote this bridge. I, I did the intro on the bridge and, you know, I should get some songwriting on that. And never did that. And I've never had that kind of gene. I do now, but I just know your value, you know, know your value and trust in, in your 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 ability. The, the humble, all shucks thing only goes so far in this business when at a certain point you're, you're attracting from your own, your own value. So I think that was the, the hardest thing for me to learn was, you know, how good I was at stuff. And it's like, I told somebody, you know, when I walk in the door, there's 45 years of musical knowledge in here. You can't just invent that. You can't walk out of Berkeley school of music and have that. So knowing that you have something special and you're there for a reason to add value, I think that was the hardest thing for me to learn.
0: You can find out more about CJ at cjvanston.com. That's cjvanston, all one word, dot com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter for a list for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.